0: You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 136 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I'm brilliant. How are you, Neil? Doing all right. Fantastic. You know, I want to remind our faithful listeners, we're we're so happy that we have you here joining us, that you can save save $70 to $250 instantly on Apple's mid-2017 MacBook Pros with no sales tax in 48 states. This is courtesy of our partner, Adorama. And Adorama has been very good to us. We like working with them a lot. And uh, this is for you, our Apple Insider readers who can use exclusive coupons this week to instantly save between 70 and 250 bucks on every mid-2017 MacBook Pro, including the 13-inch MacBook Pro with Touch Bar and the 15-inch MacBook Pro with Touch Bar. And in addition to that promo code and instant cash savings, sales tax will not be collected on orders shipped outside of New York and New Jersey. This is pretty much the lowest price that we can find anywhere. So if you've been waiting to get a MacBook Pro, this could be your opportunity. You'll have to go to a uh, page that I'm going to link to in the show notes. You'll have to click through the links specifically on that page in order to get the promo code to work. Um... If for some reason the promo code doesn't work, we have an email address on that page you can send us, we'll help to, to assist. But you you should definitely come through the click-through link and use the uh, coupon code APINSIDER to get it to work. And I hope that works out right for you. I'm, I, I hope you're very happy with your new MacBook Pros. Now, Neil, this has been a big news week. Last week, we talked about the rumor that the event was going to happen on September 12th. That is the, uh, the new iPhone event. And it looks like that's pretty much all but confirmed, right?
0: Yeah, I would imagine that event invitations are going to be going out uh, any minute now, either today or tomorrow. Um, Apple used to give like a week's notice, but they've since then gotten a little more courteous and they give like closer to 10 days notice. So if not uh, Friday, then then maybe Monday. We'll see.
1: This, this event is going to be kind of a big deal. Where do we think it's going to be held?
0: So that's the thing. The Wall Street Journal were the ones to report that this is going to be on September 12th, and they say that it's still up in the air as to where Apple's going to hold the event. I don't buy that because, I mean, you have to get the the event space ahead of time. You know, I mean, Apple. I mean, I guess they have enough money that they could do it, where they could rent, you know, Moscone and then and then have as a backup potentially. Uh, the uh, Steve Jobs Theater. I don't know. But they're saying it's to be determined whether or not it will be held at the new Apple Park campus uh, at the Steve Jobs Theater because construction is still underway. Uh, I I would be very surprised if they didn't already know what day and everything else. But that's what the Wall Street Journal reported. So take
1: that as you will. Interesting. I, I agree. I'm surprised if they don't already have it sorted out because, I mean, if you're putting on a big event... And you've got all of the AV to arrange for it. And you've got all of the logistics for managing people in and out of an auditorium and, and all of this stuff. You have already booked the, uh, the resource externally or you've already decided that your theater is going to handle it. Right. Uh, would you agree? I, I mean, Yes.
0: I, and I cannot imagine that they would delay the launch of their biggest product solely so they could have a presentation on their new campus. That That, that would be weird.
1: It strikes me that there's possibly an emotional pull to this. You know, if if this is the epitome of what they think an iPhone should be for the future, right? This This is the biggest change to an iPhone since the first iPhone. Right. Then holding it in the theater named for the company founder has a nice emotional
0: pull. And so they change all their marketing and their ad buys and their production and supply chain stuff just so they can get it at the Steve Jobs Theater a week later?
1: No, I would say not. That doesn't <laughs> make a lot of sense, does no, it? No, that doesn't make
0: a lot of sense. I mean, yes, would they like to have it there? Of course they would. Yeah, that would be a great place to have the first event. But construction works on a timeline. You have to have permits, The you know fire code, everything else you have to do. Um, they have all these things that they got to have lined up for it to work. And if it doesn't work out, then they then they have to have the event somewhere else. But they, they had to have known... Months ago whether or not they were going to have it ready in time, and I have a hard time believing that they would still not know two weeks out I think they know
1: this falls under one of the basic rules of project management, which is that you 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 cannot shrink the timeline by throwing more money at something yeah
0: doesn't work that way
1: no you, you and you know the classic example is Fred Brooks's way of summarizing it, which is you you cannot birth a baby in one month by throwing nine women at the job <laughs>
0: Yeah, you you can't get the fire marshal to show up and sign off on having a thousand people in your brand new building. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Particularly when your brand new
1: building isn't quite finished. Yeah, it
0: doesn't work like that,
1: so. One of the things that, you know, we we said this is the the biggest change to the iPhone since the first iPhone. Do you think that's accurate?
0: I think so. Um, I I think that based on everything that we know about this, uh, it is not only going to change the look and feel of the iPhone in many ways, but also how we interact with it. Um, There are so many, uh, it's a ripple effect, right? This edge to edge screen, ditching the home button, all that. Um, So one of the things that came out this week after we learned the event was September 12th was Bloomberg weighed in and we've known for a while now uh, with some degree of certainty that the new iPhone is gonna have this edge-to-edge OLED display, right? Or OLED, as some people say. Um, And uh, the thought process was, amongst a number of people, myself included, was that you would have some sort of a virtual home button, right? Uh, Something that replicates the feeling that we have right now, uh, without actually having a physical space for the button, it'll just be part of the screen. And then, so certain apps in certain situations would then expand. The button would disappear, and then how you would get the button back, I don't know. But you know, we figured all oh, we'll figure all that out.
1: And, and we've had the accessibility with a floating home button, a software home button, for for ages, right? You can turn that on if you have right. uh, special needs or or simply a device that has a failed home button. You can right, use the non yeah. And and, and,
0: I, and I mentioned that in the comments today, and we'll, and we'll get into that uh, in a bit, but. Um I, I guess that was a a, a, stu- a collective stupidity, not only on my part, but on the part of pretty much everybody that was talking about the edge-to-edge uh, s- the screen because everybody was just thinking, oh, virtual home button. They already paved the way for it with the iPhone 7 because it's got the Taptic Engine, blah, blah, blah. But now that I think about it, since this leak came out, it almost reminds me of the joke that Steve Jobs made 10 years ago when they showed the first iPhone and they were showing concepts and they had, you know, basically like a a rotary dial, how you interact with this thing. And they were making jokes about the, uh, the, the click wheel on an iPod. Um, And so it's funny to look back on that and think, oh, people were thinking that it was just gonna work like an iPod because it was the iPod phone, when in fact we have these touch screens and and, all that now. And so it makes sense to say, well, if there's no button, why would we interact with it like we did before? Why not change the way that we interact with it? And so the suggestion is that now that rather than pressing a button, whether virtual or physical or whatever, um, to unlock, you will instead be sliding up from the bottom of the screen. To, um, uh, to unlock the phone, to return to the home screen, to multitask, do all these things. So it's actually going to be a gesture uh, versus pressing a button, double pressing a button, whatever. Uh, that's yeah. the rumor.
1: But that's something that we talked about on this podcast uh, a couple of years ago before the introduction of the iPhone 6S. You know, you, you and I, and I think Mikey and maybe Steven, were on the line here, and we were talking about what happens when there's no home button even back then, yeah, and we we all kind of agreed that that would require a major revamp of the OS because the home button is so central to to different actions, and you know how it's used for the several different things that it gets used for. It's used for prompting Siri. It's used for returning to the home screen. It's used for backing out of uh, folders. Although you can do that with a tap on the screen as well. There there are a number of different things tied to it, and we all agreed at the time that it would require a major respin and a rethink of the whole interface and interaction sign.
0: Right. And and so even if you had a virtual home button, right, uh, there
1: would be a rethink I, of that. I, Yeah, we, but we weren't even talking about a virtual home button at the time. We were just talking about swipes and slides and gestures and things like using sure. the forefinger on an iPad. Yeah, I mean, you think about like um – I'm trying to say you were right back (laughs) then. Well, you think about like uh, you reach into your
0: pocket and you want to activate Siri, um, maybe, you know, I I suppose that uh, saying she whose name shall not be said in a certain combination right now, um, I suppose that that negates this problem. But for some people, they reach in their pocket, they hold down the home button that activates Siri, um, that's gonna go away. Um, And so if you've gotten into these habits and these ways of using the phone over the years, that functionality is now going to be lost. And people are going to have to rethink how they use their device. You know, it, it doesn't really compare to when we introdu- or when Apple introduced Touch ID when we first started to experience it, because we were still putting our finger on the home button all the time. That wasn't anything new to put your phone to put your finger there. You know, there's certain things that that, that change, um, but the home button was still central to the experience and has been for the last ten years. And so, to get rid of that and to get rid of the entire concept, essentially, of the home button. Uh, is pretty crazy, and um, it will be very interesting to see how well it's received. Now, that led me to write an editorial about this, uh, entitled "No, the Home Button is Not Dead" (parentheses yet). And and the reason behind this is because w- I, you sometimes we need a reminder, and I talk about this a lot on the podcast. You know, the, the average user, the casual user. I don't say that in a condescending way. I just mean that this is the vast majority of the market. Right, uh, th- the average person. Uh, who's using an iPhone. One of the reasons that an iPhone or an iPad is so appealing to them is the simplicity of it. Uh, For the first time of anybody using an iPhone, if they didn't know what they were doing and they got lost, there's one button staring you in the face, the only button you can see when you're using the device. And if you press it, it returns you to the familiar home screen where you feel comfortable, right? So something breaks, something crashes, something you don't really know what's going on. It's about as dead simple as you can get in terms of a user interface. And that's a big part of the appeal of the iPhone. And so if you take that away from people, it's going to be a shock. It's going to be a problem. And so this, to me, starts to explain why we're going to have a 7S and a 7S Plus alongside the 8. One of the ways that you can differentiate here is an Apple Insider reader, an enthusiast, a, a person who's very into technology might be the type who Uh, will embrace change and is excited about losing the home button and is not afraid of changing up their daily routine or how they interact with the device. But for a lot of consumers, they've gotten used to using it this way, and it will become a problem for some users, I think. Um, And it's important to keep that kind of stuff in mind because Apple can't just get rid of the home button. Now, maybe five, ten years from now, it's not that big of a deal. We've all gotten accustomed to it, just like pinch to zoom. But for now... Uh, there's a whole generation of people for the last 10 years that have been doing and interacting with this this way, and they can't just walk away from that.
1: Well, and that's one of the benefits of buying an Apple product is that you you know that you get the consistency and that in interacting with one works the same way, whether it was your iPhone 4S or your iPhone 6S, that, that there's a whole lot of commonality between those two devices. You don't have to relearn how to use the thing. Right. And... For anybody
0: that, that that thinks that I'm wrong or whatever, which is fine, all you need to know is one of our most popular articles that we've ever written on Apple Insider was explaining to people how to change it so that the home button um, goes back to the old functionality where you can uh, rest unlock or whatever it was, right? And the, the reason that that Became a problem was uh, with starting with the iPhone 6s and the iPhone SE and now the seven. Those three models have a raise to wake feature where the screen um, uh, turns on when you raise the phone, and so it treats it as though pressing the home button unlocks the phone. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense if you have an iPhone six or earlier because you press the the button once to turn the screen on, and then you have to press it you know again to, to to um, unlock the device. And so people were used to just pressing the button then holding their thumb there and then unlock the phone. Apple changed the functionality of that once the raise to wake came about so that you could interact with the device and still see what's on the the lock screen without that. So the reason that was popular is because if you had an iPhone 6 or earlier, it completely changed how your phone worked. And it was such a simple thing dependent on the home button. But it had been the same way for the last three, four years since
1: whenever Touch ID was introduced. And it was really frustrating if you didn't know why it changed. Right. You know, you, you had an iPhone 6 and all you did was dutifully tap to agree to download and install the software update. And all of a sudden, your phone doesn't work the same way anymore. It's quite frustrating.
0: Well, it made sense on the 6S, at least, because your phone was already turning on when you picked it up. On the 6, sure, it made Sure, like, for, for a
1: 6 user or yes. a 5 user.
0: Yeah, yeah, for a 5S user, you're like, what the heck is going on? Um and that that's a uh, that that was an issue and and I use that as an example because these are the type of things that you don't necessarily think about when we're talking about what Apple does with the future of the product and where they go. They made or, or such the a,
1: the change from slide to unlock to pressing the home button. Correct. The,
0: the, these are the kind of things that like drive people nuts and and it can really ruin a user experience and so. I think that that is part of where you differentiate this so-called iPhone Pro, iPhone 8, whatever we want to call it. Introducing the new user inter- the new user experience, the new uh, way of interacting with it, the all that stuff is something they can get away with with a high-end model with people that are going to be the Apple Insider readers who are going to be enthusiastic about this stuff. But there's going to be a huge number of people this fall, maybe even most people, who look at that and go, eh, I don't really want to spend $1,000 to lose the home button. Uh, I'm going to stick with uh, the 7S this fall. Just like there are probably some people who last year said, eh, I don't really want to spend $650 to lose the headphone jack. I'm going to stick with the iPhone SE. Um, there are different segments of the market that you have to appease for different reasons. And Apple has now gotten so big um, that they, uh, they have to do it in some ways, I think. Um, and not only that, you can't sell an iPhone 8 in limited quantities alongside an iPhone 7S that is vastly inferior and then expect to do well. You know, if they can only produce 5 million iPhone 8s a month or something, th- I mean, that'll blow up the whole company, right? If nobody wanted an iPhone 7S, you'd be like, they'd be in big trouble.
1: Right, but I would say that they're not vastly inferior.
0: That is the key. It has to have a different appeal and it has to still be a, a appealing on its own. And so you think the iPhone 7S, faster processor, better cameras, wireless, uh, inductive charging, uh, that's going to be appealing to a lot of people. And they could just release that phone on its own um, without an iPhone 8 and it would be a big seller and it would be Apple's best-selling phone and blah, blah, blah and whatever. And, and I think that's part of the key here as we look toward this September 12th event and try to figure out what to expect um, I think that the iPhone 8 is going to be a limited product for a number of reasons, including the fact that uh, in not just the technology and the costs and all that, but the experience itself is going to be divisive for some people.
1: Uh, you know, I have to agree with you. I, uh, I, I've i thought about the people that I've known that have had the experience that you described with the uh, Touch ID on iPhone S and 6, yeah. and the people who had to get reacquainted to how to unlock the screen with the home button rather than swiping to unlock, sliding to unlock. Yeah, and and slide to unlock had a long history, and slide to unlock worked for many many people, including children and and especially children with disabilities, special needs children who um, who were very used to slide to unlock. And when you change something like that, it has effects for people of all different ages and capability levels that. I I think a lot of our readership doesn't necessarily take into account first yes that, uh, that they, these are big knock on effects for all sorts of people that aren't necessarily front of mind.
0: And I saw a local news report the other day where they were talking about this, and and again you got to think about the audience. They were baffled. They were like, "How can you use an iPhone without a home button? Like it, it didn't the, the concept didn't even make sense to
1: them. Right. It, it, it's impossible. Right. These things don't make sense. Right. So it,
0: it's important to keep that kind of stuff in mind. Now, what I found interesting, and you mentioned assistive touch, the, the accessibility feature earlier, something I mentioned in the comments, uh, kind of engaging with readers and stuff um, on that editorial that I wrote, was that uh, when I'm out in the wild, uh, and you know, obviously this is not scientific, but I see a lot of people that are still entering passcodes on their phone and not using Touch ID. I don't know why they're doing that, but I have to assume that they don't trust saving their fingerprint in a phone or whatever. A lot of
1: people... I've I've seen this too.
0: Yeah. A lot of people do that. They don't want it. They don't whatever.
1: Um, well, they have no use for Apple Wallet. They don't feel comfortable entering in their credit card, and so they don't bother to do the unlock or anything else for that matter.
0: Right. But, I mean, it, it prompts you to set up your fingerprint when you first set up the phone. So people are going out of their way to opt out of Touch ID but still have a passcode because they could disable the passcode just as easily, right? Right. Um, so it's strange to me but a lot of people do that and along that same point i see a lot of people in the wild that are not disabled that have the assistive touch button on the phone which you were talking about earlier the virtual home button um and i have i've heard that i guess this is especially common in eastern markets obviously i'm not in an eastern market but um i've heard this is especially common because there's a there's a Uh, fear amongst consumers there that pressing the home button too much will break it because earlier iPhone models used to break the home buttons were liable to break. And so they're afraid of breaking the home button. And so to make their phone last longer and to get more more use out of it, they use assistive touch so they don't have to press the home button. And so thinking about that and thinking about how people get, you know, old habits die hard, right? And people get.
1: It, what's What's interesting is that people create these narratives, right? That that are based in in you know anecdotal and and uh, word of mouth recommendation, of, right? Of mouth. Yeah, of course. You know the it's it's like the uh, the apocryphal "you must always force quit all of your apps" kind of thing, right? Yeah. To make your phone work
0: better. <laughs> Don't even go down that road. We're gonna upset everybody.
1: But but, but isn't, aren't these the same kind of stories, right? The 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 same people that tell their neighbor to double press on their home button and then oh, swipe yeah. to close. No, Apple Store
0: employees tell people to do that.
1: Is the same story that says turn on assistive touch so you can have the virtual home button and not wear out your physical one.
0: And so I would be curious to see if, Apple, if this is all accurate and Apple gets rid of the home button and you have to slide up to uh, unlock the phone and whatever, right? Um, I, I would be curious to see if Apple had any like internal data on this, you know, six months down the road, a year down the road, how many people go out of their way to enable assistive touch to have a virtual home button um, because they just prefer using it that way?
1: I, you know, I don't know that Apple collects that kind of information. Do you think that they're taking that that sort of heat map or interaction information anonymized, of course, as a part of uh, when you allow developer feedback? I would think so. Phone?
0: I would I would think that they'd want to know how people are using their phones.
1: Yeah interesting
0: okay but i mean regardless even if they don't collect it i would just be curious because i would i would bet that you would see a spike in the number of people using assistive touch which is a feature meant specifically for people with disabilities i would i would guess that pe- because people they, they're just comfortable with the way that they use their devices, and and people get set in their ways. And when you shake that up, it makes people uncomfortable. You know, we had an article this week about uh, Floyd Mayweather uh, still using an iPod Classic to warm up before his fight. This guy's worth, you know, he just made two hundred million dollars on his fight with Floyd with uh, with uh, Conor McGregor. And uh, And he
1: can buy all
0: the iPod Classics he wants. (laughs) And he he uses an iPod classic. People get stuck in their ways and they like to use a certain way. Having said all that, I should at least explain for those that are listening that don't know how this is rumored to work. So the story uh, from Bloomberg claims that the lock screen is going to have a software bar at the bottom, essentially. To unlock your phone, you're going to pick up the phone and then when you touch the screen, the screen turns on. You slide up from the bottom of the screen and that will unlock the phone. Now, when you're using an app, there will be a little bar at the bottom of the screen you slide up from the bottom of the screen about halfway to bring up the multitasking view or you slide up further to return to the home screen and it's supposed to have an entirely new card-based multitasking view that's going to be exclusive to the iphone 8. now how this works with control center which also requires you slide from the bottom of the screen i don't know but we might Mm, see an answer control
1: center is now a slide in from the right
0: Well, it actually, the answer may already be on the iPad because if you install iOS 11 on the iPad, uh, the other rumor is that the iPhone 8 is gonna have a dock for apps similar to it is on iOS 11 on the iPad. So the way that it works currently is if you're on the iPad, you swipe up from the bottom of the screen and if you swipe up a small amount, it brings up just the dock and you can drag apps to multitask. But if you swipe up even further, you get the multitasking view on the left side and you get the control center on the right. So it's possible that we get some control center um, uh, stuff on the screen in addition to the multitasking using some of the larger screen real estate of the iPhone 8. Uh, we won't know, obviously, until Apple uh, has the event on September 12th and and uh, lets us know how it actually works. But that's the rumor right now as to how it's going to work.
1: I just want to mention that oh, this is another place where things have been done before by others that get adopted by iPhone sure. right uh, i have a samsung focus which is the uh, windows phone yeah and windows phone was always slide up to unlock right and uh, and actually android has sort of adopted that too on the uh, the android handset that my daughter uses the 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 slide up to do more on the card interface thing makes me think about palm pre sure which
0: the iOS multitasking view is uh, very much a rip off of too. So,
1: I was certainly going to say influenced by. I going to go <laughs> as far as direct ripoff. Oh, but, whatever uh, you know. Yeah, all these things come around again, right? Yeah,
0: but it, it makes sense that Apple would have to rethink the user interface in a new way and throw out the concept of the home button because why stick to old conventions uh, and then apply them to new form factors and new hardware.
1: Well, it's well, – I, I think what they're doing is they don't want to give up an old convention if it works until they have something better to replace it with. Right. And there, there are certainly compromises in these decisions all the way around, but the the net effect, the net result has to be that you're better off than you were before. Yeah. That, that whatever is now introduced is more useful to you than what it replaced.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like with the with more screen real estate, they're going to make the iPhone 8 more iPad like in terms of how I, iOS 11 operates. <clears throat> Which is interesting. Very. I'd be curious to see if they do, you know, split screen multitasking and other pro level features.
1: Well, they they sort of kind of did that a little bit with the plus size devices.
0: Yeah, the the home screen works in landscape and stuff like that. Yeah. But you still can't the- do split screen multitasking.
1: No, but the question is, does this become sort of like an iPad Nano, right? Mm-hmm. In that you split-screen multitasking, as you're talking about. And that's sort of how I always viewed the plus-size device, was that the iPad Mini allowed you to do some split-screen, and then the you know plus-size device, or Nano phone, as you will, um, could grow into that same spot. And just as we record this, Apple announced the event on September 12th, so it is official. There we go.
0: All right. The the event invitation is a Apple logo with a trio of colors, blue, eh, more than trio, I guess, blue, gray, red into pink. Um, and it says, let's meet at our place. And it is going to be held at the Steve Jobs Theater in Cupertino. So that speculation we had earlier, disregard it. Literally, as well, a they already knew. <laughs> well, they knew where it was. They be. knew. So it says, please join us for the first ever event at the Steve Jobs Theater in Cupertino.
1: Brilliant. I'm very happy for them.
0: And uh, I assume our own uh, colleague Dan will be getting an invitation. I have not heard from him yet as these literally just went out. But uh, you can expect uh, on September 12th exclusive coverage and analysis from us at Apple Insider. So I would encourage
1: everyone to stay tuned. Excellent. Now, one of the comments is that, you know, we, we talk about pro users and we talk about our our dedicated Apple insider readers and listeners and how this kind of change would be ideal for them where it might not be ideal for everyone else. There's a a commenter that says that, you know, quote, gestures are shortcuts for pro users, unquote. And he responds by saying, no, no, they're essential for anyone to navigate iOS that gestures are for everyone. (laughs) I mean,
0: (laughs) that was one of those things where, um, I mean, I guess if you wanted to get into semantics about it, Yes, uh, sliding your finger to scroll is
1: considered a gesture. Absolutely. Um, well, but I but I, I feel like I have to kind of agree in the sense that when Apple's designing these things, they lean towards deciding and and guiding people towards towards making it accessible for everyone, right? right. And 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 this is the same thing that you see if you read the Human Interface Guidelines. Throughout, they caution people on. Uh, doing things that are not disconcerting. Please avoid doing things that don't give people enough time to get adjusted to whatever context it is you're introducing. Um, to make it as approachable and discoverable as possible. And that was one of the things that was the, the worst crime of iPhoto on iOS 7, for example, going back in history a little bit, was that it had tons and tons of gestures for manipulating photos. Right. And not a one of them was discoverable or memorable. <laughs> yeah. It tried to do too much. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yep. So here, I I think they've learned the lessons from them. That was iOS 7. It was years ago now. iPhoto is long discontinued. That they know as well as anyone that if they're going to make sweeping changes about gestures that are are fundamental to the use of the iPhone, that they have to be ones that people can remember what they do and be able to, to figure them out quickly. And this is part of what we've talked about so many times here on the podcast.
0: As iOS grows and matures and expands and becomes more pro, right? Um, well, more of a computing platform. Yeah, but, but 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 uh, you know the the line I used in my editorial was that you know gestures, and by gestures I mean advanced ones like you know swiping from the edge of the screen, not not pinch to zoom, but like advanced gestures like the five f- finger pinch and all that to go to the home screen that most users don't use are the equivalent of keyboard shortcuts on a traditional computer. They're, they're the touchscreen equivalent of keyboard shortcuts on a traditional computer. Because as much as you and I use keyboard shortcuts and and commands and things like that, most people don't. They don't understand what they are. They've never heard of them. They
1: just don't use them. It's not. And and you're talking about it just this week. Just this week, you and I taught Max, who does the videos for Apple Insider. You taught him, I think, what Command A does. So, you know... You yeah, that? And, and this
0: is this <laughs> yeah. is something that it was a, it was a eureka moment for him. He said, "I now I know what Command A is for." This is something that's been around for you know 35 years, and it's not anything new. But uh, regardless of how long it's been around, certainly over time, more people learn, more people grow up with the platform. With a fledgling platform like iOS, um, they introduce these features, but most people don't know them, and most people never learn them, and they don't even care to learn them. Uh, and so it may seem stupid and simple for our listeners, but you have to think Control Center is not actively visible on the screen. I, many, if not most, iPhone
1: users are not using Control Center. They're just not. And some of the ones that I know that have learned about it have learned about it out of frustration. Yes.
0: And then they're like, how do I get this to go away? I don't want this on my screen.
1: Right. How, how do I fix the the stupid lock screen orientation problem? Yeah. Right. It's, I, a, it's, few, it's a, a few frustration rather than out of a desire. A few
0: years ago, I had a family member who shall go unnamed call me and said, "I'm not getting any noise from my phone." And I was like, "It's not ringing." She said, and I was like, uh, "There's a switch on the side of it." And she common common problem. She had a, a case on her phone that covered up the switch. Never thought about the switch. It got hit one day and knocked the switch, and then it was like, "Oh, there's a switch there." I didn't realize what it did you have to remember that this is a big when you have a device that sells as many as as apple does this is a big part of it and so you have to appease those pro users who want control center who want to customize who want to do all this stuff and you also have to appease folks who don't not not only don't know about those features don't don't even want them not not even appease just be be approachable yeah, agreed And that's a big part of the appeal of Apple products and the iPhone specifically is how easy it is to use. And so I would venture to say, I mean, it's inevitable, right, that we're going to get a edge to edge OLED iPad Pro with no home button. And it's entirely controlled to return to the home screen, all that through gestures, right? I mean, you could already do that now, essentially. With that's
1: that's your prediction, right?
0: I mean, I think it's I, it's if we're going to get it on the iPhone, we're definitely gonna get it on the iPad. In fact, I would have said a few years ago we get it on the iPad before we get it on the iPhone because they already had the groundwork laid with the five pinch, five finger pinch, and the multitasking and all that. But e- even with now with iOS eleven and all that stuff, I mean, it's it's much easier. So yeah, that'll be coming out on an iPad Pro, but the three hundred thirty dollar iPad. And not just for technical or cost limitations, but in terms of ease of use for entry to the iPad as a consumer for your first iPad, they have to keep the home button on there, at least for the foreseeable future. They can't sell a $330 iPad that relies on gestures and then expect people to figure that out.
1: Yeah, I agree. So the, all of the mock-ups and icons that we've seen of the rumored new phone. Yeah. And, and we've pretty much accepted this to be true. This, this is pretty much going to happen. Too much smoke for the There's a, a notch at the top. Yeah. Well, and and the, the smoke is things like the icon appearing in the resources of the HomePod firmware. <laughs> yeah. And McDonald's showing screenshots of their new app that they're going to launch using this kind of shape. And people submitting this kind of shape in screenshots and being turned down because it looks like an Apple device.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? There's just too many different things going on for this not to be it. So... There's going to be this notch in the forehead of the phone. Right. Now, in, in years past, Apple's shipped a black phone with the, the the chin and forehead being black that hid the sensors in it. You didn't see the proximity sensor. You didn't really see the camera in it. Um, and, and that changed with the introduction of the white faced phone because now you can see everything up there. Do you do you think they're going to do something to obscure that notch?
0: I mean, I. Thought yes, because OLED screen, you want to have something dynamic up at the. I always forget the name of it. What do we call the top bar? Uh, I'm calling it status, status bar. Thank you. I always forget. That. I always want to call it like a menu. I want so to call it really a, a menu, menu
1: bar. There are no m- used to menu bar, but yeah, status bars, right? Well, menu bar makes sense for Mac because you can have menus up there, but on on iOS, there's nothing to touch on up there, so there's no menus. It's a status, right?
0: it makes sense you need to have something dynamic on the status bar because variables and signal and Wi-fi and whatever right so to have a screen up there makes sense but it doesn't have to look like a screen it doesn't have to be dynamic in the sense that the rest of the display does and so making it with a black background with the OLED screen with uh, that's pushed up just to the glass to make it indistinguishable from the uh, border around it uh, where the earpiece and cameras and stuff will go I think would look aesthetically very pleasing. Uh, You wouldn't really know, very much like the Apple Watch now, when you look at the Apple Watch, it's hard to tell where the screen ends and the edge of the device begins, it all kind of flows into each each other in a very beautiful way, Uh, and so that made sense for me, but apparently, according to Bloomberg at least, uh, Apple is going to embrace the notch, and they're not going to hide it, and they're going to have the full display extend up into what they're calling ears to the left and right side of the, uh, the earpiece. Wild. I, I, aesthetically, I think it's ugly,
1: but... It's, it's going to be one of those things where you and I could say aesthetically it's ugly or it looks a little awkward. And after a year of using the device, it'll just become accepted. Yeah. After a week of using the device, it'll become accepted, let's be honest. It's it's one of those things that only designers are going to look at and go, why did they do that?
0: The only thing that, that I can see about... Um, at least in terms of mock-ups. Who knows how it would actually work? But one of the things that I found interesting in the mock-ups, knowing that the dimensions and shape and whatever of the device, uh, the mock-ups that people were putting together that had the uh, status bar uh, with a black background it wasn't the same level of curve at the top as it would be at the bottom of the device. So we know, you know, the general shape of it or whatever. So it was this weird thing where the bottom of the screen had a very different, uh, steepness of the curve as opposed to at the top where it runs into where the notches. So, I mean, I guess that might be one of the reasons they did it. It just kind of, it's a not, um, not aesthetically pleasing to not have it match on each side. I don't know. But yeah. I'm I'm trying to
1: visualize what you're telling me. And
0: so if if you look at the mockups, the the bottom left and bottom right of the phone have a curve to it, right? Based on the physical shape of the phone and where the screen ends. At the top, you can't get that same steep level of curve without actually cutting into more of the display and not using it to have mm-hmm. the matching curves on all four corners.
1: Yeah, so so the ones at the top— you're, you're, you're saying you end up giving up a little bit to have a radius as opposed to a straight line correct, across. Correct, correct. So, I mean, again, these are just mock-ups. Apple could just not use but, that portion. But in the corners where you lose that little bit of radius, I don't think that's a critical piece. You just lose well, it. Well, you
0: don't lose that radius if you go full notch, essentially, if you don't put black bars up there.
1: Neil, you never go full <laughs> notch. So that, I'm sorry. I couldn't that, that may be
0: Apple. one of the reasons is to have the
1: matching curve in all four corners. Uh, aesthetically, they may think that looks better. As opposed to wasting screen space to accomplish the same thing by drawing black pixels to look yep. like a curve, I, I don't know. I'm sure they've tested all the different permutations of, course, yeah. of this. I'm sure. sure they've they've looked at every one of those and made the decision. Um, and it's possible I probably, that probably would have been inclined personally to have gone with the uh, the using pixels on the screen to imitate the curve. I would agree with you. But I can see why that would be offensive to them, because why would they? You, you know, got this big beautiful screen, and we're now we're we're cutting into well, it. Well, and and you're you're wasting pixels to fake something physical that's a physical constraint, right? right? Yeah. So otherwise you would have it. But square there again, that was or the or point of why Windows had rounded rectangles to begin yeah. with, going back to Steve Jobs in 1982 when he insisted that parking signs and and conference tables had rounded corners, not square corners.
0: Yeah. I, I, so <laughs> I mean. It's it's not really that big of a deal, I guess. At the end of the day, um, it just looks a little weird to me. But
1: like you said, we'll probably get used to it. You'll use one for a week, you'll be happy. Yes, <laughs> maybe. And if you aren't, you'll use your iPhone SE. You <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now we we last week spent some time talking about the Apple Watch and possible things that we've been talking about the Apple Watch for a couple of weeks now. Uh, This particular report goes back ages for me because with the first Apple Watch, we noticed that there were contacts inside one of the lugs. And people speculated that that was a diagnostic port and people speculated that that was a port to enable cool things on a wristwatch strap. And we have a story that Mikey wrote today about the possibility of future Apple Watch straps with functional buttons and sensing user touch.
0: This is one of those things that keeps coming up—the smart band concept. Apple's applied a lot of for a lot of patents. Um, it's interesting. I don't know that they'll ever do it. I think it might add too much bulk to the product and make it less appealing. Um, but I would like to see that option. I, I, I don't want to see a situation where the bands are necessary um, and and required to use the device. I've used wearables that you know have a thick band all the way around to put a battery in there and stuff and it's terrible Uh, but i think that for users that might want extended battery life or uh, advanced features or whatever i think it would be i think it would be a good option
1: yeah i you know i have seen a smart band i saw a smart band project to ces where where i sent you pictures of an iphone of an apple watch strap that had a Mm -hmm. camera on it
0: yeah, th- they're one? supposedly coming to
1: market at some point, but... We'll, we'll, we'll see if they <laughs> come right. to market or not, but and, and you know, I wish them lots of luck. It's very difficult to bring something like that to market, but...
0: I've heard of some very cool smart band the, products that are coming out. I, I know of one under embargo that's supposed to be announced later this year that was pretty cool, but they all, like, rely on, like, Bluetooth and connect to your phone and stuff.
1: I, I just don't see it working very well. There are a lot of challenges to make something yeah. like that work. The... Um, it doesn't surprise me at all that Apple are making patents on this kind of thing because obviously having as much ownership and protection over the concepts that they're working on and the implementations that they're working on um, is only good for them, right? There's there's the side that says let's make product and there's the side that says we have an idea of how to do something, whether or not we want to use it as a product. We should still protect that concept and that invention. And so I think that's what this comes down to is that there are things here that could be useful that might be implemented in, as a product in the future. But what we're seeing now is, is just people thinking through problems and solving and, and inventing ways to solve complex problems that might or might not be used. I think,
0: I think that this is a concept worth exploring. I don't know that it's something that Apple will do. Um, it might be something that they enable third-party creators to do um, down the road if they could find a way to make it work seamlessly and easily, just as easy as just regular bands are right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and the whole concept of wearable garments has been around for some time. You know, if you look at make or instructables, you can see people sewing copper threads through jackets to enable switching yeah. and fabric. Um, I have one of the, uh, the Electech jackets that has iPod controls that are, are pressure sensitive I have one of the Burton ski jackets from 2003. Do you have a Scott Evest 2003? I don't own the Scotty vest, but uh, but I have the Burton ski jacket that was sold at Apple retail stores because you could control an iPod an iPod click wheel in fact with the controls in the sleeve. <laughs> I am at the forefront of wearable yeah, clothing. Apparently. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's uh, the the idea of conductive fibers and conductive fabric uh, as a control surface is interesting. But where this really gets even more interesting is when you have the fabric that can become aware of the use of different muscle groups.
0: Did you have one of those shirts in the uh, 90s that would light up when you put your hand on it? Not light up, but like have a, a, a
1: what do they call it? Like a hype hyper, hyper, hyper shirt or something? Yeah. yeah, I never owned one of those. <laughs> but... Uh, so, so you're right, I am not at the forefront. I apologize, I take that back. I never had a hyper-color yeah. shirt. But the, um, no, no, I saw this two years ago. There are articles of clothing that are able to feed back to the phone as a device. Yeah, where's um, the battery at? What muscle, what muscle use groups are being stressed? What muscle groups are being used or overused? And so as you're doing exercise and fitness, uh, the phone can warn you, when you're about to injure yourself based on what you're doing from the clothing feedback.
0: I mean, it's interesting in concept, but it, it seems like this stuff never works as well as they hope it will.
1: Well, the the question is how do you get from that one application to something that's more broadly needed, right? What problem are you actually yeah. solving by having this, this fabric that's smart? Yeah, that might be appealing or,
0: for a professional athlete, but for the average
1: consumer going precisely. out for a run, just trying to lose some weight probably doesn't mean much. Yeah. I, I agree, and that's why I say these patents are interesting. But it remains to be seen what actually comes of them.
0: So I finally went all beta this week um, because we know this iPhone event's coming up September twelfth, and and
1: not not only did you go all beta, I think you. I, Do I understand right that you also upgraded your uh, your neighbor's iPad? Uh, I, I was going to. She just got a new iPad
0: Pro ten point five inch, and I offered, and she said, "Yeah, set it up for me." So I'll probably set it up for it at some point this week.
1: But uh, I, I... Just in time for the the proper release. I come. had
0: been um, running iOS 11 on my iPad because my iPad isn't as mission critical for daily use as my phone. And I've warned people in articles and here on the podcast, don't update to the betas because you'll regret it. And, of course, one of my friends did it, and then he was, like, miserable for a few months. It was crashing on him. It was on his iPhone 7 Plus. He, he hated it. He was upset that he did it. So...
1: So so you Neil that have cautioned us repeatedly to never do this. I thing.
0: Neil who's the managing editor of Apple Insider and who writes about Apple products and has to be familiar with them to write these articles. Yes, I did. Because uh, my I don't have a spare Apple Watch. So my only understanding of watchOS 4 was just videos and what Apple explained and what had been told to me. And I had a better idea with iOS 11 because I have a spare iPhone and I have an iPad. Um, and so I have been able to test those out and, and see how it worked and finally felt comfortable enough that it wasn't crashing repeatedly on me. But I did have a bunch of crashes in the earlier betas, but we're close enough to the release now that I updated. But updating your Apple Watch is a dicey proposition because if it fails, you can't do anything. You have to physically mail the hardware into Apple and they have to fix it for you. Because there's no physical access to the port on it. Uh, you have to... Apple has to take it apart, basically.
1: So... Or Apple has access to those four pins between the that's watch what I mean lugs when I and say, they know how to use them better. Yeah, that's what I do. mean when I say take it apart. But... Um, <clears throat> you take a watch strap off and plug in the well, special... Well, you have to
0: lock. remove the cover on it and you have to have a special plug
1: that goes in there and all that. <laughs> I, it's got those four pogo pins right between the lugs on the one of the watch strap ends. Well... So they should be able to connect something to that and recover with a it proprietary think. cable that nobody owns. Yeah. Yes, but it's it's but they don't have to crack the watch <laughs> open to do it. They just have to put on a fresh. I, I track. was
0: oversimplifying for the purposes of saying don't update your watch. But anyhow, um, okay. I updated the watch. I it's not as great of an update as WatchOS two and WatchOS three were, but there is one thing that they did that
1: really I love. Um, Wait, can I ask, can I ask, do you mean great in terms of the amount of things done or great in terms of how good it is? Okay. So uh,
0: the one thing I did that's awesome is if you start playing music on your phone and or anything on your phone, really, that is any sort of music from any app, not just the music app, but Spotify, you know, Google Play Music, whatever you're using and you have your watch on and you raise your wrist, it by default shows the Now Playing screen while music is playing on your phone, which is great because then you don't have to dig to find Now Playing and control your music, it's just you wanna pause your music, it's right there. Awesome, don't have to interact with it. I've been saying that for years now. The best wearable device is the one you have to interact with as little as possible. Uh, The one thing that they kinda screwed up that I'm not happy with is the new dock. So watchOS 3, they introduced a dock. I was very happy with it. It was kind of a combination of the glances view with quick access to certain apps. Awesome. Um, You had to scroll left and right. It would display one at a time. So they decided they wanted to improve it and they wanted to make it kind of sync up with the digital crown. So now you press the lock button and it shows the apps in kind of a cover flow view where they're like one in front of the other and you scroll forward and back in a way that feels natural uh, just based on how they move with the, uh, with the digital crown. The problem with this is because they are in like a sort of, uh, 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 what's the term we're looking for? They're, they're, they come at you like a Ferris wheel essentially, right? Um, one is always in front of the other to some extent. So at most, you will see two thirds of a glance of the app that is in your dock. You can't see the full app window, um, which I think I see as a step backwards because I like being able to view all the content in the app before I open it because it's a quick way to see what's going on. What I would prefer to see them do is just shrink them down into four quadrants and show four at a time. but. I, I think that uh, I think that it's a step backwards on the dock, but that now playing is a step forwards. The rest of it, who cares? Um, okay, you can view the apps not in the honeycomb view anymore. Uh, there's a new Toy Story face. Who cares? Wait, how is Siri face though? I don't care. I don't like it. I, I mean, it's I suppose if you were dependent on like calendar and want to see everything coming up in your day, you might like it. I, you know, it's it's fine. There are people out there that'll like it. I don't use. The um, modular watch face with a bunch of text on it, I don't like that. So
1: um, it's not appealing to me. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I was looking forward to Siri Face as the the sort of redeliverance of what I saw as the Pebble timeline.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's appealing to some people. Uh, but I, again, I don't use the modular watch face. I prefer to have a regular watch hands, a legacy type watch face. So, right. but that's the nice part about it, right? Um, it can be what you want it to be. It can,
1: it can take on the form that you need. Yeah. Siri watch faces is, is, you know, Apple's applying machine learning to helping surface the things that they think you want on the watch. And, and I, that, that had a lot of appeal to me. I'm, I'm interested to hear that, uh, sort of intrigued to hear that it's not what you want.
0: So right now, right now I pull it up and it tells me that I've got a meeting at two sunset is at seven 30. And at some point it wants me to take a minute to breathe.
1: It sounds a little underwhelming.
0: There's a random image on here. Let me tap it. It's a photo of a friend of mine from last year. So this must be like a photo from last year. I don't even know why I'd want to look at that. Um, And if I scroll up, I get weather. Yeah. So, okay. I have a photo from a year ago. If I wanted to remember it, I know when the sun sets and I have a meeting coming up. I don't know. That's not very appealing to me.
1: Yeah, I I guess. I get it. It seems a little underwhelming. I had hopes. I've seen positive comments. Some people
0: like it. I just don't care. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, you know what? It's beta. It's not even released yet. And you're on day two of trying it out.
0: People are going to hate this if if one thing doesn't change, which is there is no way in the music app on the watch to select your music library on your phone. It by default and only displays the music that is saved on the watch.
1: That sounds very much like iPod kind of thinking. And it's kind of paves the
0: way for the LTE connectivity too. But uh, I think it's going to tick off a lot of people who are used to raising their wrist, opening the music app. Controlling the music on
1: their phone, connecting to their phone. Now it used to by default. Connect do you to, hold on? Let me yeah. let me ask. So I, I know that you use the music on your watch yeah. quite a lot. Do you think? Do you think a large percentage of people who use the watch use it for that? No,
0: which is why most. I like it, but I think most people are going to be upset. Because I used to have to go in, because by default it showed the music from your phone before on watchOS 3 and prior, right? So by default, I would have to go in and change and say, no, I just want to see the music on my watch. Because I'm at home, I'm about to go for a run, I haven't left my phone behind yet, and it's like, oh, your phone's here. Here's all of your music. And I'm like, "No, no, I don't want that. Now it goes the other way. Now it's like, well, if you want to control music from your phone, that's great, just start playing it on your phone and then use the now playing widget. But if you want to begin playing music, you have to use your phone. You can't do it from the watch. There is no way to view your music library from
1: your watch. Right. It's the, it's, it's unidirectional. And they
0: should, what they should do to appease both is to have it not only give you the access to view your music from your phone on your watch, but
1: remember your preferred state when you reopen the app. I think that would solve the problem. Tricky. Very nice. You know, my, my question is anecdotally, I see people wearing the watch and I ask people what they use it for. And the the biggest answer is notifications yes especially for notifications for people who are frequently in situations where they can't look or dig for their phone yeah whether they're on at a, at a job that doesn't allow them to look at their phone but they can wear a watch mm-hmm. or they just happen to it, it's inconvenient to dig the phone out of a purse kind of thing or out of a handbag to to look at it versus just looking at the wrist music comes up pretty rarely when i ask people and i ask everyone i see i literally do whether it's a Samsung Gear Watch or a Fitbit Blaze, what have you, or the Apple Watch. What are you using that thing for? And music almost
0: never comes up. Music makes a lot more sense in New York. You got your phone in your pocket, you're holding on to, you know, something while you're on the train and you want to quickly skip to the next track. It makes a lot more sense than if you're like driving your car or sitting at your desk.
1: Yeah. I'm 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 nodding my head here. You can't see it. I'm always intrigued. I Like I say, I always ask everyone who's wearing a smartwatch what they're using it for, because it's one of those things where I, I sort of feel like the messaging has changed around them a number of times. And I'm curious what people identify themselves that they know they need it. I would like know? to
0: see Apple take the automatically showing now playing concept and expand that further to
1: other things like Apple TV controls or um well, they, the way they sort of do that with the phone, when a text input comes up on the Apple TV and they prompt for it on the phone? Correct.
0: Yeah, like, so I should be able to do a Siri command or something and say, hey, I want to watch whatever on the Apple TV. And then when I raise my wrist, by default, it knows that I'm sitting down and I'm watching TV. It displays the um, the Apple TV controls right on there.
1: Now, does that get weird if you're in one room not watching tv and your wife is in the other room watching tv and the controls go to your wrist
0: i think there would be a way to contextually know based on even if it was even if it had to be prompted by a siri command right if i tell it hey i want to watch tv and then it switches all my inputs and does all that stuff and then automatically it knows i'm sitting right it knows that i'm not standing because it alerts me on that every hour so it should know you're sitting you just said i want to watch tv you're using your apple tv um, and then display the controls. That's the kind of like machine learning that I find to be way more interesting than giving my, my schedule for the rest of the day. Like, let me create a grocery list. Let me tell you my preferred groceries, like four f- grocery stores, like four of them. And then when you sense that I'm there and it raise my wrist, let me check off items on my grocery list, you know, like make me not have to dig yes. in. Yes. Because you already have all this data, you have location, you know that I'm standing, you know that I have a list waiting, you know that these are my grocery stores, you can have all that saved. They have maps, they have reminders, they have GPS, they have all this stuff. The groundwork's been laid for it, they just have to kind of find a way to bridge those gaps between these different services and to do it in a way that's intelligent and not annoying. Because as soon as you are trying to control your music at the gym and it thinks you're at the grocery store, you're going to be really ticked off. Yes. So they have to go slowly because that example you gave of how, how does it know that it's you controlling the TV and not your wife in the other room or whatever, that's the kind of thing where a good user experience goes out the window very quickly because it's trying to be smart and it's not very smart. So I think Apple's right to take it slow, but I think the inevitability is a device that – uh, it does more than just know that you're playing music and knows where you are and what you're doing. It does. You don't even have to tell it to start a workout. It knows that you're moving. It knows based on your pace. It knows based on your location, oh, he's going for a run, or he's on a treadmill, or he's on a bike, or no, he's in a car. He's not exercising right now.
1: Well, heart rate went up, right? Heart rate up coincident with, with moving at this kind of speed. You're right, doing and so work.
0: you're seeing that now with iOS 11, the do not disturb while driving automatically pops up. So these are the small examples of machine learning and intelligence and, and automated stuff that, that are starting to creep into our lives. But if you start to think bigger picture, you can really see where it starts to get really exciting and become a device that uh, you don't have to think about. And that the, the best wearables, the ones you don't have to think
1: about. Absolutely. It has to be glanceable, yep. as you say. So you mentioned car a second ago, and we had a story here. We've talked about the Project Titan for mm-hmm. ages, and... Uh, Recently, a group of 17 Apple engineers who were said to be working on Apple's Project Titan have left the company for a company mm-hmm. called Zoox. This is a, another Bloomberg report that said that the engineers who specialized in braking, suspension, and other mechanical automotive systems had come to Apple from traditional car makers and have now gone on to this company Zoox that is based in Menlo Park and has raised so far $290 million since July of 2015. Now, are you surprised by the idea that engineers no. will be leaving? Okay. Can you give me some context for it? Sure.
0: I mean, imagine that you work at a company on a project, and then they go, eh, that thing you were working on, we're not doing that anymore. But, but here, go do something else. And you're like, but I really like that project. And they're like, well, we're not doing that anymore. So then you leave. I mean, that happens all the time at companies. They, they start an initiative. That happened with a friend of mine who worked at Google they started with a project. They started with an initiative. Uh, the can was pulled on it. The plug was pulled on. It, I should say, and they said, oh, "Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go do this elsewhere." Um, Apple also ran into this problem a few years ago, and they they have since course corrected to fix it. But when they were working on machine learning and and artificial intelligence and that type of stuff. Um, they w- didn't allow the people that were doing the research to publish their papers in you know, scholarly journals and stuff. To, And that's a big feather in the cap if that's what you do for a living. And it's exciting, and it's it's a perk of the job. And the fact that Apple wouldn't allow their employees to do it was was hurting them. And so they since have reversed stance on it and now allow people to do it. But yeah, if, if you're working on a project like that and then it, the plug gets pulled on it, you're going to look for a job elsewhere. It's not surprising.
1: Well, also not really surprising in that... Um you know, we, we were looking at this uh, – there was a story that ran a couple of weeks ago about how what, – what the longevity is of an employee's uh, time of employment at the company, right? How long, are on average, are people stay employed yeah. at these companies? And it's less than two years for Apple, for Google, for Facebook – that on average, people don't even make it to the here. That's
0: point. a um, Silicon Valley thing, but it's also a bit of a generational thing, too. You know, my parents, you worked for one company your entire life, you were loyal, and that was the way it was. And nowadays, my friends, you know, every two years, they're going to a new company, they make more money, they get picked up, recruited somewhere else, they go back and forth, so.
1: Well, it's the only way to advance right.
0: anymore. That that certainly is part of it. Um, <clears throat> but also, I think that's part of the, cu- the culture in Silicon Valley. So, I don't think that any of that is necessarily... Representative of uh, how good or bad a company is with respect to Apple, um, but certainly in Silicon Valley, where uh, companies go under, projects don't pan out, whatever. I think you just see it a lot more there.
1: And the, the self-driving car thing is not a dead project at Apple for any measures. You know, there's there's the uh, fleet of, of Lexus RX 450HS driving around with Apple's test bed on them. There's the uh, the Pale project, which is the employee shuttle that's supposed to be self-driving. So all of these things are sort of still in progress. The question is, do Apple need mechanical engineers who understand about suspension and braking systems? And and that's... Probably not as necessary. Brakes are important. I mean, let's not kid ourselves.
0: Uh, obviously, yes, but that's not what they're focusing on right now.
1: <laughs> right. I agree. Interestingly, Zooks also has poached some of Apple's supply chain specialists over the last two years. I think what we ought to do is we ought to keep an eye on what Zoox is doing and, and keep watching that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think that there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in that space, including what Apple's doing, but uh, everyone's approach is different. Um, and, you know, whether it's ride-sharing or your own car or, or what form self-driving cars take, uh, it's going to be a very exciting space over the next five, ten years.
1: Absolutely. Now, this is one where you had a little bit of fun. You went to a uh, announcement, product announcement, and you got to see X-wing and Tie fighters flying around.
0: And yeah, and land speeders or whatever they call them. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody who's into technology uh, has to be somewhat of a Star Wars geek, right? Like, I think that Star Wars is kind of like the mainstream quintessential. You know, it's, it's larger than life nowadays. Um, you're, you're offending all of our Star Trek fans. You know, well, that, I love right? Star Trek, too. Don't get me wrong. I, 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 I'm probably more of a Star Trek fan these days than I am Star Wars, just because it's Star Wars overload and saturation. But still, I mean, you get excited, right? Um, so I was not familiar with this product. I guess they launched either earlier this year or late last year. Uh, the initial these drones that they, they, this company Propel made. Um, they're kind of revamping it. They're doing some new limited edition ones that are wax sealed with these cool boxes that you open up that light up and they're, they're just awesome. Uh, but the, the real reason that we were interested in this is because launching, uh, by the time you guys are listening to this podcast on Friday, September 1st, um, they're launching an app that accompanies these drones that does all kinds of really cool stuff. So, the first thing that you need to know about it is if you've never flown a drone before, which is probably most of you, um, you get this physical controller and then you get the drone. But if you don't want to fly the drone yet and crash it and whatever, um, you connect it to your iPhone through Bluetooth and they have an app that simulates the physics of the drone. And it allows you to learn how to do basics like fly around, land, shoot at stuff, whatever. Um and so they have made a game out of it and there's 34 levels and you progress and you rank up and you move your way up uh, to whatever ranking it is. And then whenever you feel comfortable, you can connect that exact same controller that you've been using to control on your iPhone or your iPad and then fly the drone in real life. Um, And then that's where things get really interesting, because now you can uh, connect it to your phone. You can plug in headphones so you can get uh, audio from the movies, like, you know, the sounds of the blasters and music playing and Han Solo and Chewbacca encouraging you while you're fighting and all that. And then your phone can connect to up to 11 other people. So a dozen people total in combat in the real world right in front of you on these physical drones that are about the size of your palm. And you fly around, you shoot lasers at each other and, you know, try to try to win and try to get the high score. So it's a cool mix of like video games, a little bit of augmented reality in there, um, a little bit of, uh, you know, obviously the the iconic Star Wars franchise. Um, and so they have three different models that are out right now. They're priced at one hundred and seventy nine dollars. Um, they're available as of today um 179 dollars for the limited edition one i don't know how much the regular edition one is I th- they were around before for 170 so i'm guessing they dropped a little bit lower but uh the, they also have cool things in the phone app like they're gonna have meetups and stuff so you're gonna be able to find other people that are playing you know if you're traveling or in a new town or just in your own town and want to find people that have these uh you can get together and, and do these you know aerial combat with these drones um there's a bunch of cool stuff coming with them. So out of the box, they work with, uh, um, infrared. So like the remote control on your TV, um, they're going to be offering $40 upgrade kits later this year. Uh, so they're somewhat modular and you'll be able to tack on a laser. Um, and the laser requires more precision to shoot guys down. But also if you're playing in like a smoky environment, you can actually see the lasers coming out of the, the ships. Um, and the, so I need to have a fog machine <laughs> if you want to see the lasers. I mean, they did it. So they did it in this uh, in this like small space, and they had professional pilots there showing these off, and it was super cool. Like they were like flying in formation and shooting each other, and they had a big TV in the background with a bunch of stars on it, and there was smoke there, so you could see the lasers coming out. And they had the John Williams score playing. It was really cool. I would encourage you guys to check out the article and the video that we have in there just to get a feel for what it looked like. Uh, things were not quite as impressive when the journalists took the. To, to controls and didn't know what they were doing. But the one thing I gotta say for these things that was very encouraging is I saw these things crash into each other countless times and they didn't break. Uh, you may have like a broken propeller or whatever, but apparently these things come with like a dozen propellers and uh, they come with a year warranty on it and the batteries are swappable when it comes with two batteries. So it's actually a pretty good value for this toy, all things considered. And especially when you when you realize that these things can fly at like 30 miles an hour if you put them in pro mode, um, they're, they're pretty durable. Um, and I, I came away at least from my initial you know uh, spending an hour with them. Uh, they, I was pretty impressed by the, how durable they were because they they were not taking it lightly, lightly on these things. they were crashing into each other like crazy. Uh, but it was it was cool. it was exciting. this I think this is gonna be a very popular toy this fall. They look like yeah, and, and the other thing that's interesting is when you think of a quadcopter, usually the propellers are at the top and they and they push uh, from the top, but to make them look, they, they pull up, Yeah, pull right? up. Uh, uh, but to make them look more like Star Wars vehicles, they had to re-engineer. And so these are actually four propellers at the bottom of the vehicle. They're pushing from the bottom. And so... Um, so it's an upside down. Trip. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea is that you, the propellers are less noticeable. So obviously they have to make some modifications to the, cause you can't actually have a star Wars thing flying in space, but when the lights are down and they have a smoke machine on and all that, you don't see the propellers. They just look like they're just flying along like ships. It's really neat. And uh, they do things too. Like they have a, a, a button on the physical controller that you can press. That'll make it do a barrel roll. And it just this is like a little quick, a quick flip and stuff.
1: See, I like that. I like the, that the controller can implement moves that would otherwise be right. difficult to do. And I've always thought that there should be buttons for things like that and that there should be buttons for being able to collect a swarm and direct a fleet as one. Right, I should be able to get ten of these things and group them all together, and then as that locked group direct them to fly a certain direction, and have them be able to do it yeah, without collisions. You know, they, they, There's. It seems to me, and I've seen some of the research at MIT that allows them to do things like that, and as well as they've got machine learning that allow them to avoid collisions yeah. automatically. That you ought to be able to do so much more with these things than than just the uh, well, try to fly around. Not for a dollars, but yeah.
0: Not for $170 and something that fits in the palm of your hand. I mean, what these things are capable of doing for the price and for the size. I mean, I'm not saying they're cheap. Don't get me wrong. But
1: they they got got lasers. lasers in them.
0: And, you know, think about the technology. You get a physical controller that connects to your iPhone and to the Um, to the drone itself you can connect up to a dozen of these and then all your phones talk to each other so you get leaderboards as you're playing in person and it all uploads to the cloud with your account and so they actually said they're going to be doing like events at comic-con later this year but they're also going to be tracking the leaderboards and seeing some of the top players around the world and inviting them out to go out there and and engage in competition
1: so we need to go out to the forest and do like drone racing league in the forest pretty much yeah
0: sweet and these are actually designed to do combat in pursuit that's why they do the barrel roll and stuff so they want you to be like flying after somebody and trying to shoot them down didn't work that well at the event space because it was such a small space but well and and journalists journalists flying it but even then it's like how cool is this that you have these little flying machines shooting at each other and you know it was i mean it was a little chaotic and not perfect and i'm sure that there's the accuracy on shooting at infrared is not great, but who cares, man? If I was 12 years old and these things were out, it would blow my mind.
1: Absolutely. Now, talking about other mind-blowing things, we're already beginning to talk a little bit about the iPhone for 2018. It doesn't stop, Neil. The rumor cycle cannot end just because you need to come up for air. The rumor is this. Apple is already in development talking to Samsung Display about 5.85 and 6.4-inch OLED panels for next year's iPhones. Yeah. That the development schedule has already begun rolling, and they're already figuring out things like funding, facility investment, production plans, and getting all of the work started. Makes sense. So the the idea here is that they were originally considering a 5.28 and 6.4-inch displays, but they're abandoning the 5.28 size as a result of the demand for bigger phones, bigger screens, mm-hmm. Right. So the 5.85 inch is the same size as this year's forthcoming iPhone 8 or iPhone Pro, as you want to call it. And it's going to make sense for the company to bring over the same Mm -hmm. form factor. The 6.46 is the bigger panel. And so it will be interesting to see what that looks like in 2018. Is that going to be basically a scaled up version of yeah, what we Yeah, I we're think John Gruber
0: had speculated that they would do something like that next year where it would basically be the same thing that we're doing this year, which is essentially the same form factor in your hand as the iPhone 7, but using the edge-to-edge display to make it a much bigger screen. So you might see something where uh, next year, something like the size of the iPhone 7 Plus, but with an edge-to-edge OLED display gets you up to like 6.5 inches. So still fits in your hand the same way, but gives you that much more screen
1: real estate. Cool. Now, we think that Samsung is probably the only OLED supplier here, right? They have the capacity to manufacture OLED on large scale.
0: Yeah, I think Sharp is ramping
1: up. And probably LG, too, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I think so.
0: Everybody's kind of... Apple's been investing in these companies, too, because they want to diversify and not just be relying on Samsung.
1: Yeah, and I'm thinking LG is probably going to have a big announcement at Mobile World Congress, um, especially the North American version of that. That used to be called CTIA. Yeah, I think that this is inevitable. Yeah, they... I agree. I agree. So
0: the only the only wild card on this, um, the switch to OLED, is Apple's investment in micro LED.
1: But micro LED is, you know, do you use micro LED for a phone, or do you use micro LED for a heads up display, or do you use micro LED for the Apple Watch? Why not all three? My my thought is that you use micro LED for the things that are going to be held much closer to the face where it matters, right? That was your comment about using Oculus yeah, yeah. or Gear VR, or those kinds of headset-mounted things, was that the closer the screen was mounted to your face, the more you could see the screen door, and yeah. the more difficult it was. So that's where micro-LED really shines. Well, it also
0: shines because it can do, essentially, e-ink, paper-style screen is always on. So that makes it a great candidate for not only the watch, but for the phone, too. Imagine you set... The watch, obviously, you would always have a watch face on, and that makes sense. But imagine you set your phone down, and it would still you know, like a, like a Kindle or something, have a screensaver display, a a, uh, show the time, whatever. And, you know, Samsung does this right now with their old AD phones because they can get away with it. It's just such low power consumption. Um, But imagine if you could have something dynamic, like the whole screen was taken up. It it would be like putting a case on the back of your phone, but except it would be on the front. You lock your phone, set it down and it would show whatever you want to show.
1: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about ARKit. So we know how important AR is to Apple, that that we've seen a ton of different interesting uses for augmented reality. Uh, Apple brought developers and press out to Cupertino to talk about this. Yeah,
0: they kind of had a um, uh, push this week. I actually was watching uh, Vice News tonight on HBO, and Joswiak was on there too, which I thought was interesting. Uh, always nice to see him and not Phil Schiller, but... <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> yeah like Greg, Greg, greg's a good
0: guy <laughs> phil's fine he's just a little overexposed there i don't know why he's always their go-to guy phil strikes me you know we were talking a couple of weeks ago about how apple's so out of touch when it comes to content and it's just like they they phil strikes me as the most out of touch guy at that whole company like him and eddie q are just like dad rock oh yeah the kids are into coldplay we are too kind of folks you know like he's just kind of they got that feel but anyhow i digress uh yeah jaws was on um uh vice talking about augmented reality apple invited a bunch of the press uh to check out some of these apps at cupertino and uh yeah i mean this is we've talked about it's gonna be a big deal this fall it's gonna be a really big deal apple uh or i'm sorry google tried to steal some of apple's thunder by announcing their own ar kit competitor
1: uh (laughs) ar core and it (laughs) only works on
0: three phones (laughs) none of them any older than
1: 2016 uh Wait, which, which three phones? The, it's uh, Pixel and Galaxy and, s Yeah, I think, that, that and that right? I think there's one more.
0: I don't know what it is. But, I mean, it's not going to have nearly the reach of the uh, of of Apple. Google announced their ARKit competitor. It doesn't run on as many phones. It's not going to have the same mass market impact that the iOS 11 install is going to have. I mean, people are going to install iOS 11 and immediately get these AR apps and it's going to be pretty exciting.
1: Well, and that, that goes back to the whole Apple and how long a device is supported for anyway. Yeah. Right. You know, with, with Android O, for example, it's going to be available on a somewhat limited number of phones at first. And, you know, such a small number of people are going to have it versus the number of people that get iOS 11. And then among that smaller subset, the ones that are able to have AR core compatibility is even smaller versus the large large number of people that will be able to have AR kit. Yeah, right AR, AR kit's going to run 11.
0: on your iPhone 6S, your iPhone SE, and iPhone 7, and uh, iPad Pro, and more recent iPads with A9 chip or newer. So...
1: And that means me with my six M out of cool. Correct, the pool you won't get it. ARKit. <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> Sorry, it was bound to happen. But at some point. Uh, you know that that is based
0: on the as we were talking about before that uh, raised awake feature that uses the accelerometer. That's why it can't do it.
1: Yeah. Now, along with bringing people out to demonstrate ARKit and show off some of the examples that are out there, Apple updated the resources on the developer portal to detail the human mm-hmm. interface guidelines. And, you know, it's it's not a long amount of comments that they have there. It's not that they have huge requirements around it, but they have some key guidelines that developers need to consider to make it an immersive experience. And there are simple things like not putting up dialogues about it, like not putting up controls on the screen to touch to rotate an object, but instead to use the camera and gyroscope and accelerometers to have you rotate the phone. Uh, not asking users to start moving immediately when you open it, but instead to to give them time and context to get acclimated right. to the AR environment. Um, using consistent characters and consistent kinds of icons to show where things will be placed. And, you know, especially for like the furniture apps, like Ikea's app, for example. You know, you have a different kind of square target to show that an object is about to be placed there versus one that is already placed there and you can rotate or scale, things like that. Um, it's it's really about trying to identify what the best practices are mm-hmm. for the interface and give some guidance so that you don't end up with uh, a mishmash of different user instructions. Because the, the overriding thing is that when you have all these different ARKit apps out there, you want them to all behave similarly in many ways so that once you've learned how to use one, that translates to mm-hmm. learning how to use all of them. It, the the worst thing in the world would be if you had what I call the DVD <laughs> menu experience, right? And you laugh because you understand exactly what I'm oh, saying yeah. the minute I cite that, right? You put in a DVD, and they've gone to the trouble to create custom DVD menus. And you figure out how to operate it and where the stuff is. And then you put in another DVD, and it's completely different custom menu, and nothing translates. You and sometimes the, the whole thing, the right?
0: menu isn't even lined up properly, so you press down, and it goes to the right. and Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a nightmare. And and so if Apple issued no guidelines at all, AR could right. end up the same way, right?
0: Apple's always been very careful about these types of things. It's not anything new. No, it's not anything new, but it's, it's another... It is an example of why Apple will do this better than anyone before and why the experience will be better on an iPhone and simpler and easier. You know, you can maybe only get a better uh, AR experience or VR experience, you know, with a an elaborate setup with your computer and all this hardware and spend all this money and have to tweak everything and get it just right. And it might work once until somebody comes in and messes it all up. But when it works on ARKit, you know that you're going to install it on your iPad, hold up your iPad and look, and it's going to work. Exactly.
1: Now we've been talking since WWDC about the idea that the Amazon prime video app was going to come to Apple TV. Yeah, They announced that. Yeah. They, uh, Tim Cook said it actually. Yeah. And, we have a report that says that the Apple TV app is not going to be available for a September launch. The uh, The report is published by Recode, and the sources are claiming that the app won't be ready in time. There's no real provenance for the report. Uh, nothing's really saying where the sources are getting this from. But we um, we had our version of a little birdie that basically told us that there's there's no announced timetable for the app beyond 2017. We'll see. And, you know, we were we were reminded that Tim Cook promised that we would hear a lot more about TVOS later in 2017. I I thought for sure I'd understood that we were getting the Amazon Instant Video app in, in the fall. Yeah, I think Isn't we were. Isn't that what I thought I heard? I, I would like for that to come true. Um, and, and it's not because I like a lot of Amazon TV content there's some that I like and some that's that hasn't caught my attention yet but I hear the Tick is good you know I was a fan of the old Tick you remember the old Tick show the one on Fox with uh, Patrick Warburton or the or the yes, cartoon yes Patrick Warburton yeah
0: there was the Fox live uh, live series there was the animated series and there was the comics
1: I remember the yeah. animated series but the Patrick Warburton one was very good and Patrick Warburton has been involved in Amazon's production of this oh, okay. one he's not playing the role of the Tick but he is he's been involved he's and cool consulted guy. with them on it he absolutely is, and the tick is good. And uh, I would like to watch that on my Apple TV. And and furthermore, you know, Amazon and Netflix and Roku and mm-hmm. all these guys are aiming at 4K, and the current Apple TV can't display that. Okay, and but, HDR. It you know, will. A future one might. And HDR is is uh, one of the things that makes the big gains. You know, people talk about 4K, but it's really HDR that uh, that yeah, will make the biggest impression, absolutely. isn't it?
0: I have a. I finally got a 4K HDR TV a few months ago, and I don't have a lot of content to watch on it. But I do have a PS4, and I got uh, the new Uncharted: uh, Lost Legacy, and I have um, Horizon Zero Dawn, and they both run in an HDR, and they look spectacular.
1: I bet. Now we've been talking about the possibility of, a, of an HDR capable 4K mm. video capable Apple TV. And we know that one of the things that has to happen is that the content has to be there for it. Like you said, you know, you've got yeah. your Pia, your PlayStation to do it. So we have a report that says that Apple's caught in a contract dispute with movie studios.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things and, that always comes up. New, better content comes available, higher quality. Studios see it as a way to squeeze a few more bucks out. Apple sees it from a more of a consumer perspective and says, well... Nobody's going to buy it at that price, and it leads to a dispute. This is the same thing that has happened over the years with music and TV countless times. Um, You'll remember the compromise when they switched to higher quality DRM-free music. Uh, They allowed singles to be sold above 99 cents to $1.29, but in return, albums were in bulk a little cheaper, and also certain tracks were dropped to like 79 cents. So they had some variability on the pricing. This is one of those things where I can see it from both perspectives. You know, the um, movie studios are saying, well, our content is constantly being devalued. Everybody's getting it cheap from uh, from Netflix and whatever. You know, this is higher quality. We should charge more. We should charge like $30 per movie. Uh, whereas Apple's looking at it and saying, hey, everybody's already paying 12 bucks a month for Netflix and that has HDR in it. Why would they pay $30 for a movie to own? They'll just keep going with Netflix. So... I see both sides of the argument. I mean, I think Apple's right. I think that from a consumer perspective, most people aren't going to pay $30 to buy a 4K HDR movie. But, um, you know, really, it's up to the rights holders. It's up to the content owners. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, I uh, I think that making a $30 movie purchase is a tough sell.
0: Well, that's the MSRP on a lot of these Blu-rays. When you go to Best Buy... They're not sold for the MSRP uh, launch week because they want to get you in the door, but the actual r- r- suggested pricing is like $30, $35 for a Blu-ray.
1: Okay. Let me ask you, are, are the days of inviting young women back to your dorm room to see your Blu-ray collection still going <laughs> on, or are gone. those days pretty much over? Okay. that's That was what I was asking.
0: I, I still buy Blu-rays because I don't like... Uh, streaming, um, uh, the frame drops drive me nuts. So like I was watching Netflix, uh, the other day, I was watching master of none and there was a, a long uh, scene where they kept panning and they were holding the same shot. And when they pan, you really see the lost frames. It stutters. Um, and that drives me nuts.
1: And I've been having some difficulties with Hulu dropping frames, but I, am inclined to blame my isp more than i'm well, inclined you to blame, blame it doesn't really matter else. You just won't get it on a blu-ray true but uh, i i'm not getting it on blu-ray anyway because i'm not inclined to pay 30 bucks for a movie so
0: i pay about like 15 20 usually like uh, guardians of the galaxy just came out i got it from best buy for 20 bucks mm. Um, but I buy all the Marvel and Disney stuff because it all comes with iTunes codes. The day that they stop doing iTunes codes is the day that I'll stop buying Blu-rays from a company because I want to have the best of both worlds. I want to be able to put it on my iPad and bring it on a plane. But if I'm at home, I want to have pristine quality and not worry about how good Spectrum cable is going to work. Precisely.
1: And are you concerned about companies dropping iTunes codes? I am, yeah. in Um Because,
0: you know, I, I, I see, you know, Disney wants to get into their own... Uh, Netflix competitor, pull their movies from Netflix and start selling. So why would they keep providing stuff through iTunes? And certain studios used to do it and they stopped because they moved over to Ultraviolet, which I don't even bother with. So, uh, yeah. And I don't want to have different services for different movies. I don't want to have to have some of my stuff on Google, some of my stuff on Ultraviolet, some of my stuff on Apple. I just want to have it all on iTunes. I'm all in on the Apple ecosystem. I want to be able to launch the Movies app on my Apple TV and find my library or to uh, load up the app on my uh, iPad and download them. I don't want to have to mess around with all that crap. And as soon as they start trying to do their own stuff like ultraviolet, that's when I check out. And so I stopped buying films from certain studios that don't offer iTunes codes. The same thing that I do with vinyl records. I only buy if they come with a download code in it so that I can get it on my iPhone because I can't sit down and listen to it on vinyl every time I want to listen to a record. I want to put it on my phone or my Apple Watch.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, keep, keep watching this one. Keep the stuff coming because I am curious to see what happens next in this, uh, this sort of contract dispute. Now we have a tip, and this is an important one, where iOS 11 allows you to free up iPhone and iPad storage by deleting the app but keeping the data and document files of that app. Yep. Have you seen this tip? Basically, it's a support? feature
0: that if you have, um, if you run out of space on your. Uh, Uh, phone with iOS 11, it will automatically remove certain apps, but leave the icon there and store, continue storing the data for the app that is relevant to you, uh, but get rid of the app itself. Um, So if you have something that you only open occasionally, uh, this is an easy way for your device to start freeing up space and, and conserve. And so for people that are on a legacy 16 gigabyte device, this will probably be especially appreciated, but in much the same way that, um, Uh, you can think of it similar to the iCloud photo library where there's still thumbnails of your photos, but they don't load until you tap on them to see the photo and then it downloads it from the cloud. Basically the same thing for apps.
1: Yeah. Is it possible for the phone to automatically offload the app or is this something you have to do manually? No, it automatically does it if you enable that feature. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. That's very cool. And it looks like there's a, uh, within the settings and view of an app and sort of managing storage, there's a, a... option that says offload app. This will free up storage used by the app, but keeps its documents and data reinstalling. The app will place back all of your data if the app's still available in the app store. And uh, when an app has been offloaded, there'll be a little cloud icon with the download arrow in it next Mm -hmm. to the app's title on your home screen. This reminds me a lot of what the Nextbit Robin was trying to do. Do you remember that phone? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So the Nextbit Robin's whole, whole shtick, their whole reason for existence was that they would automatically offload apps for you in order to keep space based on how recently you'd last used one mm-hmm. and immediately pull it back if you needed it. This this is delivering on that kind of promise in a widespread way, isn't it?
0: Yeah, no, it's, I think it's going to be a welcome feature for a lot of people.
1: Brilliant. All right. Well, this brings us to the conclusion of another perfectly good episode of the Apple Insider podcast. I thank you for listening. I really do. And if you have comments or feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. If you have a service or product you'd like to advertise, we'd be happy to talk about that too. Uh, Neil, where can people find you on the internet?
0: you can find me on Apple Insider um, and we will have a lot of coverage leading up to the September 12th event um, and you can tweet at me or follow me on Twitter at this is Neil and I would encourage uh, those of you that are listening that enjoy the podcast um, or that use our app and enjoy that uh, please leave us some reviews on iTunes and the App Store um as you know uh we work very hard at this stuff we spend a lot of time on it and uh we do the best that we can i know we're not perfect but uh you do end up with some trolls on there uh that leave the one star reviews which which are not uh particularly great and i know there's uh, many more of you that outnumber the trolls out there that listen and that enjoy it so if you are one of those people um i encourage you please to go help us out and and leave a review and 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 be as kind as you can
1: (laughs) please feel perfect use everyone. Yeah, right. And uh, I'm at Marks on Twitter, and I want to again thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.